Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com. Hey everyone, just a note that we discuss sexual and domestic violence in this episode. In 1988, Robin Givens, a well-known actress, and her husband, Mike Tyson, the heavyweight champion of the world, gave an extraordinary television interview to Barbara Walters of ABC News. As Mike sat quietly, his arm draped around Robin, she addressed persistent tabloid rumors that he was violent and abusive. Does he hit you? He shakes, he pushes, he, um, he swings. Sometimes I think he's trying to scare me. There are times that it happened when I thought I, was, I could handle it, you know. And just recently, I've become afraid. I mean, very, very much afraid. It's a stunning interview, not just because of its honesty, but also because of what you suspect she's still holding back. But far from eliciting sympathy for Robin, which is what you'd expect, or drawing condemnation of her husband, the interview would lead to a nasty backlash against Robin Givens. One month later, she would file for divorce, and soon thereafter, she would become commonly referred to in the press as the most hated woman in America. I'm Susie Vanikaram. And I'm Jessica Bennett. And this is In Retrospect, where each week we revisit a cultural moment from the past that shaped us. And that we just can't stop thinking about. Today, we're talking about the vilification of Robin Givens, a talented actress who, in the 1980s, became known for her violent marriage to Mike Tyson. But we're also talking about the way she was treated by the press, what it teaches us about domestic violence, and the role race played in all of it. This is part one. So, Susie, for our listeners, I just want to reset the scene here a little bit. What we've just heard is an interview that Robin Givens and Mike Tyson have given to Barbara Walters. It's 1988, and Robin has described the abuse she's been suffering at the hands of her husband. He happens to be the heavyweight champion of the world at this time. And first off, this clip is pretty stunning to hear, but it's even more stunning to watch. Yeah, I mean, it's actually riveting television, you know, for better or for worse. it really is. You just really see 
how honest this moment is. Like, I think we're yeah. just not used to seeing celebrities in this unguarded a way. Even now in the age of social media, they sort of pretend they're sharing their real lives with you, but it's all very managed. And this feels like just a very honest confession yep. at a time when that was truly very unusual. Yeah, absolutely. But before we get into all of it, what led Mike Tyson and Robin Givens to be seated together side by side on that couch for this national television interview? Well, I think the primary reason they do it is because they're doing damage control. There's constant rumors about the violent nature of their relationship. The tabloids are hounding them. They've only been married eight months at this point, And you know, his people really want to rehabilitate his image. They hope that he's going to do mm. more TV and film, so they need things to quiet down a bit in terms of the public perception of their marriage. And so, you know, they agree to do this interview, partially also because Mike really wants to show off his new opulent mansion to Barbara Walters. Oh, and they're wow. hoping, <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting detail, right? Yeah. And they're hoping that it will you know, make Mike seem like a sweet family man. And to some extent, also, it'll rehabilitate Robin, who's being very negatively portrayed at this time. Oh, that's so interesting because it basically just all backfires in that regard. Yeah, I think looking back, it's very clear that the interview does not go as planned. I mean, Robin seems to reveal much more than she was prepared to reveal. Mm. She almost seems, once she reveals it, to immediately kind of seem a little off that she's done it. Like, you can sort of mm. see her looking into the distance. Like, mm -hmm. she seems to almost immediately regret it. But I think what it really shows you is what a gifted interviewer Barbara Walters was. It's so interesting because what happens is that instead of people having sympathy for her, they actually turn on her. Yeah, absolutely. Robin gets branded a gold digger, a liar. The coverage is just so much worse than anything you'd expect. And the rabid attention to their relationship really only increases as a result of this. I mean, I can absolutely see why you wanted to unravel this. There's so much to unpack here. They were also really young. I think that's one thing people don't realize. Like, they were 21 and 23 at the time of this interview. They were oh, babies. They got... Oh, But okay. I think because they're both so larger than life in a way, they mm -hmm. read as a little bit older. Like, even when you're watching it, I don't know if you had that reaction, but I kept yeah. having to sort of remind myself how young they were. Yeah. And... I've always kind of wondered about Robin Givens because at a time, you know, that you and I have talked about where there's all this sort of revisiting of women right. and women characters. In a post-Me Too world or whatever. Right. I don't think she's ever really been given mm -hmm. the chance to have her story revisited in a way that feels like true to what really happened to her. Yeah, absolutely. But can we backtrack for a second? Maybe walk us through what they were like back in the 1980s because these... We're 220-somethings. Well, I mean, I think it's really important to understand that Mike Tyson was literally one of the most famous people in the world when this interview aired. Okay. Boxing now just doesn't have the same kind of appeal it once did. But right. at one point, boxing was more popular than football in this country. Oh, wow. And she was famous, too, in her own right. But she wasn't anywhere near his level of fame. So I think their relationship from the moment it began not long before this interview, to be honest. They hadn't been together so long. There was a lot of scrutiny to it. She was sort of this impossibly glamorous. I mean, Robin Givens She's so beautiful. is so beautiful. There's something really regal about her. And mm -hmm. I think there was an automatic assumption that she was this icy bitch um, mm. for 
you know, lack of a a normal way to put it, because mm-hmm. I don't think she is those things. But her appearance automatically lent to this real contrast between Mike Tyson, who's kind of this big bear of a man who grew up in the streets of Brooklyn. So I think that in and of itself drew a lot of attention to them. Yeah, that makes sense. But wait, Robin was already acting by this time, right? Yeah, so she was starring in Head of the Class, which started in 1986, which was a very popular sitcom about a bunch of kids in a gifted program in a New York City high school. And, you know, I grew up watching that show, and I loved Robin Givens. You know, her character was a bit of a spoiled rich girl, but she was smart and funny, and she was ambitious, and she was a Black student in a mostly white honors class. And I related to that, right? Like, I was also... In in real life or in the show? Oh, in the show, in the show, sorry. In the show, okay. She was also very smart and clever and ambitious in real life, but Mm -hmm. the character she played, Darlene, was sort of an extension of her in some ways, right? I think she became conflated with that character, so that's also why people sort of assumed she was this spoiled rich girl, which she wasn't, you know, by any Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about who she was prior to this in her real life? Yeah, so Robin is really interesting, and her background becomes kind of weaponized against her. Mm. She was born in 1964, and she's raised by this single mom, Ruth Roper, who ends up being a really significant part of the coverage of Robin and Mike's marriage. Sort of Chris Jenner's like momager before that's a thing. Mm-hmm. But she very much poured a lot of her energy into her daughters. Robin had a sister named Stephanie, and she raised them. Where did they grow up? Oh, they grew up in New York. And Ruth and Robin's father divorced when Robin was two years old. And she really raised them to be goal-oriented and hardworking and ambitious and You know, in fairness to Ruth, she was all of those things. She never went to college, Mm -hmm. but by the time Robin is acting, she has built a $2 million a year consulting business that designs like computer systems for banks and brokerage firms. I mean, that's not like an easy business to break into while you're raising two kids. So she is really doing everything she can for her daughters. And Robin does start working a bit as a kid. She occasionally models. She was like in Seventeen Magazine and she does a little bit of acting. But the thing that gets a lot of attention in pieces about her at the time Mm -hmm. is that she's incredibly smart. She went to private school. There's like a People magazine article in 87 that mentioned she had a 3.8 grade point average. And she finishes high school at 15 and enrolls at Sarah Lawrence College. So she is legitimately like, I think a genius, maybe. And she's one of the youngest people ever to enroll at Sarah Lawrence. And she graduates in 1984 at 19 when a lot of people are just getting to college. So that is like a big part of how people think about her in relation to Mike Tyson, because Mm. there's a lot of assumptions made about his intelligence. He doesn't graduate from high school. So that's something that gets talked about a lot. When she graduates from college, her mom really wanted her to become like a professional. Her mom didn't really see acting as a real job, which, Mm -hmm. I mean, I can relate to that. My mom wouldn't have seen that as a real job. And she enrolls in classes at Harvard. It's unclear if she's like taking some pre-med classes to eventually go to medical school. But in her book, she says she never applied to medical school, but she was taking some classes to eventually do that. Okay. How does a person who's graduated from Sarah Lawrence at 19 is like maybe enrolling in medical school go on to be with Mike Tyson? Well, there's a long journey to get there. So while she was in college in 1984, she books a guest role on The Cosby Show. 
Okay. And Bill Cosby, who at that time was also one of the most famous men in America, <laughs> becomes uh-huh. her mentor. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Bill Cosby just pops up into the story. And the reporting at the time is that he convinces her mom to let her drop out of Harvard. And he says to her mom, if she doesn't get a job in six months, then I'll pay for her to go back later. Like, he takes a real interest in her and convinces her mom that acting is a real option for her. And Ruth agrees, and they move across the country to L.A. and move into Bill Cosby's home, which I have... Wait, a lot of questions oh, about his real life home, not the Cosby house. No, no, I, I mean, there was no Cosby set. house. It was like a set. <laughs> yeah, no, they move into his real life home. Um, Whoa. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I have questions about that knowing what we know now about Bill Cosby, yeah, but yeah, I don't have any answers for okay. you on that front. And mm-hmm. he helps her get an agent and acting does work out. A couple years later in 86, she is cast in this sitcom Head of the Class that I mentioned, and she stays for the full five-year run, and it's a a successful show. And I seem to remember that it wasn't just Mike Tyson she dated. She had dated a lot of famous men, and that sort of gets used against her, I think. But who, who was that? Yeah, later on when there's like all this sort of coverage of her as this like conniving gold digger or whatever, it gets mm-hmm. mentioned a lot that she dated Eddie Murphy. Okay. When she was in college, she met him at a comedy club. She was 16 and he was just starting out in Saturday Night Live. So I think he was 19 or 20 okay. at the time. So not that much older than her, although 16 mm-hmm. is pretty young to be dating a guy who's like a full-time cast member on Saturday Night Live. You have to imagine that that was a bit Mm -hmm. wild. She calls him her first boyfriend. So that was a real relationship, and they continue to be friends to this day, I think. But she also briefly dates Michael Jordan, who was not nearly as famous as he would become in the 90s, but another sort of like very famous Black man. This is then used. Used, but also the sense that she's, like, targeting these, like, successful Black men, which, like, I don't know, is that targeting? I want to date really successful, cool people, too. Like, isn't that just what everybody wants? Like, is is that, like, some sort of scheme? I don't know, but... And then she meets Mike Tyson, and that becomes kind of the defining relationship, unfortunately, I think, from her perspective of her life, although she will, luckily for her, go on to much healthier relationships later on. Okay, Mike Tyson, I mean... He was huge in this era. I feel like the thing that I remember most is him biting that guy's ear off. Yes, Evander Holyfield. Which maybe happened in the 90s. Yes, it happened much later, much later than this, yes. So who is Mike Tyson at this point? So he is 20 years old when they meet. He has become the youngest heavyweight champion of the world, which means, I had to look it up because I didn't know exactly what that meant, that he's the boxer who holds world titles from all of the major sanctioning organizations simultaneously. So he's, like, won a lot of fights, I guess is what it means. Mm -hmm. He's a multimillionaire. He's reportedly worth $50 million when they meet. Some from his fights, like, a lot of that money actually is prizes from the fights, but also Mm -hmm. he has a Pepsi deal, and he has this really popular Nintendo game called Mike Tyson's Punch-Out!, Oh, wow. Okay. I remember this. Yes, yes. Yes. That game was very popular. Okay. And to give you an idea of just, like, how quickly he's risen to this fame and fortune. Yeah, because he didn't come from money. No, I mean, he did not come from money at all. But he literally went from making $500 for his first professional fight when he was 17 to just 
three and a half years later, making $20 million for a fight. So you just sense that it's oh. just been this really oh fast-paced yeah. success. So he is incredibly successful and famous, but he hasn't really adjusted to that yet, right? He doesn't have this like machinery that a lot of people who have that kind of wealth have around them. It's all still kind of... Um, right, the agents, the Yeah, managers, it's all just like really hectic. Entourage. And there's all these people sort of coming in and out of his life. He's still trying to kind of adjust to this new life. And he, if I remember correctly, had a pretty traumatic childhood. Yes, like a very traumatic childhood. So he was born and raised in Brooklyn, mostly in this neighborhood, Brownsville, which is pretty rough and tumble. And it was the center of race riots and police violence. There was a lot of poverty and in the 60s and 70s there. His mom was an alcoholic who died when he was 16. He didn't know who his father was. There's a man okay. who was on his birth certificate, but a different man is the man he refers to as his father. And what he says about that man is that he was essentially like a neighborhood pimp. And that's okay. sort of who he knew to be his father figure at that time. He essentially kind of grows up in the streets. He's like a pickpocket. Okay. He's involved in a lot of petty crimes. He's a, a street fighter. You know, have you heard Mike's voice? So Tyson's voice is, he has this little speech impediment that he, he still has. It's like a lisp that gives him almost like a... Yeah, he does. He has, it's like a soft-spoken quality to it. Yeah, it's like a childlike quality. And he's often teased for that. And he oh, wears glasses. So he says he started oh, to okay. fight to defend himself because he would get teased. Also, a thing about Mike that's often discussed is that he raised pigeons from a very young age. He's like really... Huh obsessed with pigeons okay. in particular, but birds in general. And it's used in profiles to depict him as this kind of gentle giant. Right. And he has said that the first fight that he was in was because an older boy killed one of his birds. And he, like, okay. avenged the bird. And it felt so good to, like, beat the shit out of this bigger kid. Wow. And that's when he realized that, you know, he could fight, like, really fight. I see. And... By the time he's 12, he's been arrested 38 times. So it's... Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he really he really leans into the fighting. Another thing that he's just recently talked about publicly is that also during this period, he experiences a sexual assault. And we don't know a oh, lot about okay. that. He doesn't, you know, really want to share a lot of details about it for understandable reasons. But he's only really talked about that since he's turned 50. So it's a fairly recent thing that it's he's admitted. Recently. But I okay. think his childhood was rough by every measure. Yeah. Okay. And so how does Mike go from being like a street fighter to boxing professionally? So when he's 14, he gets sent to a juvenile detention center okay. because he has stabbed someone. <laughs> So oh, okay. um, at the juvenile detention center, he meets a trainer who teaches him to box and then eventually introduces him to this pretty well-known boxing coach named Customato, who okay. really takes him in. He becomes his mentor. He becomes his father figure. He moves in with Customato and his family. Cust teaches him to read and write. And then he, he didn't know to read and write. He didn't know how to read and write at that time, not really. And he sends him to school. He does eventually drop out of high school his junior year, but for a couple of years he goes to school because Cuss and his wife really take an interest in him, and that is what fundamentally transforms his life. You can see the 
they couldn't come from more different backgrounds. Yeah, I mean, they grow up in such different ways, right? She is definitely sheltered, right? She is, like, protected. Her Mm -hmm. mother is very careful what Robin and her sister Stephanie are exposed to. Mike is the opposite. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ibera Star Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. So Robin Givens and Mike Tyson are living these really different lives. How do they actually meet? So they meet in 1987. And at that time, Mike is a little bit on his own. Customato, who is this man who is essentially his father at this point. Yeah, like father, manager, coach. Yeah, basically, has died in 1985, a couple years before Mike became the heavyweight champion of the world, which I think is something, you know, that is hard for him. And he's sort of surrounded by a lot of people who are making their living off of him, managers and trainers. So that's kind of where he is. 
when they meet, he sees her on television. He sees her on Head of the Class, and he asks okay. to meet her. And I guess oh. someone gives him her mother's contact information. And so he repeatedly leaves messages with her mother, Ruth's assistant. Oh, interesting. And okay. Ruth ignores it initially. You know, for all these sort of rumors afterwards that Ruth is, like, targeted Mike Tyson and is trying to, like, mm. she initially mm-hmm. does not see Mike Tyson as a serious prospect for her daughter. Like, she wants her daughter to marry, like, a doctor or a lawyer. You know, she's not looking for some street fighter, whether or not he's the most famous man in the world. So she Mm -hmm. ignores the calls for months. And then finally, I guess she decides to just mention it to Robin. Oh, she hasn't even told Robin at this point. No, she doesn't even tell Robin initially that these calls are coming in. But it's so persistent and goes on for so long. Finally, she's just like, I guess I should just mention this. And Robin defies her and is like... Uh, no, I want to meet him. I want to go on a date with him. And Mm -hmm. Ruth doesn't love that, but she agrees to set it up. And then when they go on their first date, I just think this is the funniest detail. She brings her mom and her sister and like her agent and publicist with her. It's like this sort of like summit meeting or something, right? Then when they finally meet, it's kind of this sort of wild (laughs) coming together. So I assume that dinner goes well. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I read Robin's book. She wrote a book in 2007, long after this, called Grace Will Lead Me Mm -hmm. Home. And at times it's quite harrowing. But this section, she describes it as this whirlwind and magical romance. You have to remember, she's like a 22-year-old girl, right? And Mike sweeps her off her feet. She loves how much it feels like a fairy tale. She describes it as so exciting. She Mm. tells a story about how one night they go out for dinner and Sylvester Stallone walks into the restaurant who's just like this huge star. And he comes over to say hi to them. And Mike says to her, like, see, I'm a star to the stars. You know, and you can see how that would be so exciting. Yeah, so you can see the appeal. Someone whose life has been very controlled. This is very enticing. And one thing she talks about in the book a lot is that her father abandoned her as a child. She didn't really have a relationship with him after the divorce. And that feeling of being rejected leaves her craving Mm. this kind of attention that Mike is giving her and this sense that he's strong so he can protect her and care for her. There's something in that that feeds something in her that she feels she's been missing. And he's a little dangerous, right? When you're 22, that can seem fun and exciting as opposed to, you know, vaguely terrifying. So that's kind of where they are when they meet. So at what point does the relationship get serious? It seems like it gets serious pretty much right away. Like the way she describes it, he is just a full court press from that point forward. He's calling her. He wants to see her all the time. There's just this kind of like what we would now describe as love bombing, I guess. (laughs) But that's what happens. And at the same time, what she will reveal in the book much later is that in these first few months, it's also the first time he hits her. Okay. They have this fight she describes in detail. He's not listening to her. She's trying to leave his apartment and Mm -hmm. he hits her and she is stunned by it and she immediately runs to a friend's house but can't bring herself to tell the friend what's happened. And she describes a set of emotions that now we've come to expect from Mm -hmm. someone who's suffering from domestic violence. This shame and also this belief that she must have done something to deserve it. And she also has this naive... 22-year-old belief that she can somehow 
heal him, right? Like she can somehow fix him. She wants or sort to of, save him. Yeah. Right. Because he is very vulnerable with her. He tells her what a messed up childhood he has. And he actually very explicitly at different times early on in their relationship asks her to take care of him or to promise she'll okay. never leave him. Yeah. So she doesn't. And they're married 10 months later. So in February of 1988. And a lot will eventually be made of the fact that there is no prenup and he is 21 and she is 23 at that point. Oh, he's younger than her. Yes, he's a couple years younger than her, which also is often pointed out as if 23 and 21 are like 30 and 21. You know what I mean? She's not like yeah. some sophisticated woman of the world. Right. But she right, presents right, right. a real sophistication. I think there's something naturally really sophisticated mm -hmm. about her. And so I think that's also really drawn as a contrast between them. And so the marriage, as I understand it, is really tumultuous from the start. Yeah, it only lasts eight months. You know, this relationship that will go on to kind of be defining for both of them for the rest of their lives is right. over in less than a year. And these allegations that he's abusive and cheating on her start to trickle out in the press. I mean, he's not okay. doing a lot to cover up his activities. and Meaning he's hitting her in public? There are incidents where okay. he does hit her in public. There's a particularly famous incident that I'll explain in more detail later where he chases her and her mom around a hotel lobby. Okay. But I think just in general, like, there's a lot of scrutiny on them and mm -hmm. there's all this tumult around them and that it's hard for them to keep that out of the press. And she confirms in the memoir also that he is cheating on her even in these early stages of their marriage and that he doesn't okay. even try to hide it from her. He's not really trying to hide it from the press either. He flat out tells her about it and taunts her about it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, he does not come off like a good man. And he is also prone to jealous rages. So while he's like cheating on her pretty openly, he's resentful of her career. He wants her to quit acting. He's pushing her to have kids right away. And there's this other piece that I think plays a really fundamental part in why there is so much being leaked to the press. So okay. as I said, Cus D'Amato, who is his original coach and trainer, has died already. Mm -hmm. He has another manager who he's pretty close to who dies right around this same time. And okay. so those two deaths combined leave him really vulnerable to this whole host of pretty terrible men who are okay. trying to figure out a way to make money off of him, including yep. people you've heard of like Don King and Donald Trump. Ugh. A whole host of bad men appear in this episode. Like, yeah. We've already yeah. had Bill Cosby. Now we have Donald Trump. Yeah, this is so interesting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Trump and Tyson have been friends since the late 80s. Around this time, Trump is trying to get him to have his fights at his casinos, trying okay. to sort of become one of his promoters. And okay. there's a particular manager, Bill Caton, who really resents Robin's influence, right? And her mother, who comes with her, mm. they are bringing more scrutiny to the kind of deals he has. Okay. When they meet, this guy, Bill Caden, is taking a third of all his earnings, and they renegotiate okay. that down to a quarter, which is significant. I mean, okay. he really yeah. doesn't have anyone looking out for his interests. Now, right. there is this woman who is smart, and her mother, mm -hmm. who is shrewd, and they are just asking what seemed to me like very reasonable questions. But right. all these people around him who really would rather operate in the dark hate it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the leaks in the press are coming 
from okay. them. And she's kind of being depicted in the media as the Yoko Ono of boxing, which is a Oh, quote. wow. That's an actual quote. Yeah, that's an actual quote. And, you know, obviously Yoko Ono could be her own episode, right? Like the way she's sort of depicted as the reason the Beatles break up is ridiculous. So Okay, I see. So this is sort of where the like gold digger in it for the money, never signed a prenup, influencing him narrative about Robin begins to take shape. Yes. And, you know, we're talking about a lot of money, right? Like these guys have a lot of money at stake. He's making $20 million a fight. So if you're taking a third of that versus 20%, that's a huge amount of money. What else at this point is the press saying about her? The coverage of her in general is just scathing. She's portrayed as ambitious and greedy and also just daring to meddle in men's business. You know, the Mm. sports writers really come after her right away. And it's hard not to see kind of a racist undertone to it. It kind of feels like they're just one step away from calling her uppity. Uppity, yeah. Like, it's just like, how dare she think that she deserves to speak in this space or have an opinion about her husband's business. Like, Right. It's so interesting, too, because it's like if she's uppity, he is kind of like this savage brute who people didn't expect more from in a yeah, way. Yeah, there's definitely racism in the way he's treated as well, right? I think it's just this idea that, like, what did she expect? Didn't she think he was going to be a thug? Huh. Like, he's this kid right, from the streets of Brooklyn. From, yeah. Like, there is just racism weaved into a lot of the way they're both talked about at this time and even in the way that her mother is talked about, right? Because she's also described as really ambitious and that is Mm, also mm -hmm. made to seem like something disgusting. And I think in general, this is kind of, you know, a thing we all experience as women. I remember once a mentor said to me as he was trying to convince me not to take another job that I was too ambitious. And I've never Mm. really understood that criticism of women. Like, I feel like we just celebrate ambition in men and yet somehow women are supposed to like sit quietly and wait. I don't know. It's very weird. Well, that's the whole Sheryl Sandberg thing, right? However you feel about Sheryl Sandberg. Yeah. She made the point, which was correct, that we rarely call men too ambitious because ambition in men is the default. But in the 80s, we certainly didn't have that context. Right. And also, I think the coverage really focuses on her mom's ambition. That's also kind of playing into this stereotype about her because her mom is young and attractive and that makes people really suspicious of her. Oh, so the mom actually gets kind of dragged into the negative press coverage. Yes, very much. Okay, so this is all happening super fast, and they haven't even done the interview yet, right? Yeah, this sort of all happens in rapid succession. So they get married in February, and a couple months later in April, Givens becomes pregnant, um, and that is made public. In May, a lot is made of the fact that they purchased this fancy country estate in New Jersey for more than $4 million and that Mike has asked Ruth to pick it out. Like in a lot of ways, that's used as evidence that Ruth is like manipulating him when he's just asked her to do this because he has something he needs to be in, I think, Japan for. And he's always fantasized about living in these big English manners that he saw as a child. Hmm. So... That is the first time that Ruth becomes involved in his finances, as does Robin. And it's when they begin to realize what all the sort of financial arrangements are with his manager. So that is like a first moment of real tension around that. And then in June, Tyson has this huge fight with Michael Spinks in Atlantic City that gets a lot of coverage. It's a $21 million fight. And 
to give you an idea of how much Robin is disliked going into this fight, there are a number of articles about their relationship and how hmm. it might have destroyed him and whether or not she's ruined his ability to fight, whether just her sheer presence in his life has sapped him of his, like, mojo or you something. I don't know. It's like, so in insane. And be a fighter. Yeah, right. like, she's this Jezebel who's, like, stolen his skills. I don't know. It's the craziest right, thing. Right, And then when she's introduced at the fight, the crowd boos her. Wow. Which just, like, must have been awful for her. And just... FYI, he knocked out Spinx in 91 seconds. It was a record. <laughs> okay, so, so, like, she has fine. not destroyed him in any way, shape, or yeah. form. If anything, he's working on destroying her. Right. Later that month, she miscarries. Um, and oh, okay, so they don't have So they don't have any her. children. And it, is that reported then in the press, too? Yes. Like, all of this is public, that she's pregnant, that she miscarries. It feels like everything that's going on in their life is public in ways that don't seem to be in their control. Just like there yeah. is no way for them to operate without this enormous spotlight on them. And we say this a lot on this show. It's like reality TV before reality TV. I think mm -hmm. before we had this kind of access into people's lives, there were certain figures that became stories that got followed as right. if their lives were fictional. Every little move. Yeah, where like their humanity almost gets lost and they just become like a fun narrative to follow. Like no one's really paying attention that this is like a real thing that's happening between two people. And so is the abuse consistent throughout this time? It seems pretty consistent. I mean, another thing she talks about in her book is that after this big fight, they throw a big party in New Jersey at their mansion. And to give you an idea of just how famous they are, the first guests to arrive are Oprah and her longtime partner, Stedman. Oh, wow. And they're okay. there for a parade the town has arranged in his honor. And Mike doesn't show up to the parade. And so Robin and Oprah go to lead the parade. And then he finally shows up. And they go back to the house. And with all the guests downstairs, Mike just goes upstairs and she follows him. And obviously out of sight of all the guests, he slaps her and grabs her by the throat. So oh, wow. it seems okay. like that's just a consistent thing that's happening in the background. And she's just yeah. consistently kind of trying to pretend like it's not happening and putting on a happy face. And the other thing, too, is he struggles with real mental health issues as well. Is that right? There is a lot of mental illness, but at that point, he hasn't faced that yet. There'll eventually be a diagnosis and some conversation around that. But at this point, this fight takes place in June, and she says that by early September, Michael is completely unraveling. He's staying up all night. He's depressed. He's manic. He threatens suicide because he thinks Givens is ignoring him at times. And then there's this huge tabloid incident, which is that one day he hits her and she flees to the, they have an apartment in New York. She goes to New York. And he keeps calling to convince her to come home. And when she doesn't come home, he essentially says he's going to do something drastic. And he takes her BMW and drives it into a tree. Oh, wow. See, it's so interesting how I don't remember so much of this story. So is that a suicide attempt? I mean, it, it seems very much like it's a suicide attempt by any sort of objective measure of what that is, although he does deny that afterwards. Okay. It's essentially, I think, an abusive cry for attention, right? He's not getting mm -hmm. what he wants from her. And he's like, I'm going to make you pay. And the way he does it is this act 
accident, I guess we'll call it. And this right. gets a ton of coverage. Obviously, I mean, he's one of the most famous people in the world. He's gotten into this terrible car accident. There's ambulances and police, and she rushes to be by his side. But even then, the way it's portrayed in the press is that he's like insecure when it comes to her, that somehow she's like to blame for him having mm. done this thing. There's like a subtle and implicit... He's so sick he drove his car into a tree. Right. Like this implicit sort of blame on her. Like he's not an adult who's in control of his actions. He's just so enamored by her. It's almost like she's like a witch who's put a spell on him or something. I don't mm. know. It's just the mm-hmm. strangest way to talk about a grown man. But that's yeah. just part of the racism that's part of this coverage, I think, in a way. Right. And I think the way in which he's infantilized is certainly part of that and the way that she's vilified. And we will mm. talk about that more with Salome Shatillet, who, as you know, is a writer for The Times. And we'll get into some of those details. But here, there is this kind of sense that he can't be expected to be in control of himself. It's so interesting how the press has really, like, taken a side early. But isn't there some trip to Russia that also occurs? Yes. And to get away from all the attention, right, all this tabloid attention to his mm-hmm. car accident, he decides he's going to go with Robin to Russia, where she is filming a special set of episodes okay. for Head of the Class, her sitcom. And while they are there, they get into some altercation. And he is, again, violent with her. And he ends up chasing her and her mother around the hotel lobby in a very public way. And obviously there's press there because they're covering his visit to Russia. So that gets a lot of attention as well. And coming off of that, I think essentially she insists that he see a therapist of some kind. Mm -hmm. And he announces publicly that he is suffering from manic depression, which um, Mm. we now call bipolar disorder. So he really starts to face the fact that he needs a psychiatrist and he starts to take lithium. Okay, and just to situate us, basically it's like all this stuff is leaking. She gets booed at this fight. He runs her BMW into a tree in maybe a suicide attempt. Everyone's like, oh, poor Mike, he can't be in control of his actions. This is all in the months leading up to the Barbara Walters interview. All of this is happening super quickly, right? Yeah. I mean, the car accidents at the beginning of September, by the end of September, he's publicly announced that he is seeing a psychiatrist. So all this drama is eventually what leads us to the infamous Barbara Walters interview. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 
2025 QX80 coming this summer. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reu hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Susie, before you walk us through the actual Barbara Walters interview, maybe it would help to give listeners just a little sense of what a big deal Barbara Walters was in 1988. Yeah, she was a huge celebrity. She's just an absolute powerhouse in television news. She broke so many barriers for women, and her interviews always got a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. She was famous for these really intimate celebrity interviews where she would get people to cry. As the New York Times put it when she passed last year, at a time when politicians tended to be reserved and celebrities elusive, Ms. Walters coaxed kings, presidents, and matinee idols to Mm. answer startlingly (laughs) intimate questions. So she was really known for getting those moments. And this interview certainly delivers on that. So... About the interview, it takes place at Robin and Mike's mansion in New Jersey. Walk us through it. What happens? The interview itself, this sort of infamous Robin and Mike interview, is part of an hour of television. And it honestly kind of takes forever to get there. Mm -hmm. It starts with an interview of Mike alone, where he denies being violent with his wife. Then there's an interview with some random psychiatrist who does not, in fact, treat Mike Tyson, but Mm, who who is asked to comment on whether or not him taking lithium will make it impossible for him to continue to box, which just reveals how little mental health was properly understood. Then there's an interview with... Ruth, Robin's mother, and Barbara asks her about whether or not she's controlling him and his money, and she denies it, of course. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. know what the expectation is that she's going to be like, yes, I'm a monster. And Mm -hmm. then there is also an interview with his manager, who I mentioned, Bill Caton, and he essentially says he thinks that Mike is not mentally ill, he's not violent, and any medication he takes will take the spark in quotes, that's what he literally says, the spark Spark. out of Tyson, and will mean that he can never box again. Just this idea that they need him to be whatever he is because they think any change might impact the money they're making off of him, right? Like, if he's mentally ill, they would rather he go untreated if the risk of him getting help is that somehow he becomes 
different in the ring. And so they're all really invested in not getting him the help he needs. Okay, so it's an hour of television focused on Mike. All these people are interviewed. Then do we finally get to Robin? Yes, we finally get to Robin. She's not interviewed alone. She's interviewed with Mike, which I think is an interesting choice. He sits beside her the whole time. Yeah, I can picture that. I mean, so they're side by side on this kind of floral couch. He's in this almost Cosby-like sweater. Yeah, it's very 80s. She looks stunning and beautiful and poised. She's wearing this kind of 80s blue, like, shoulder pad shirt. Yeah. And he has his arm around her. It's around her as they're talking together, and then it just kind of stays there. Yeah, they're sitting side by side, and Barbara Walters asks her, what has this roller coaster of a relationship been like? Mm -hmm. And Robin responds with the other part of this interview that gets played over and over again. She says, it's been torture, pure hell worse than anything I could possibly Mm -hmm. imagine. Every day is a battle, some kind of fight with managers, family, trying to hold on to your dignity. And what's so interesting to me about this is that second part, right? She's making it pretty clear that what she's saying is not that the relationship with Mike is pure hell, Mm -hmm. but that every day is a battle with all these people around him who are clawing at him. And Instead, when this interview is replayed over and over again, it's just the first part that gets played, that she said that being with Mike Tyson was torture, pure hell, worse than anything I could possibly imagine. And it's one of the ways in which she's made to seem like a bitch. Like, how could she sit next to him and say that about him? Right. But it's pretty clear she's saying that about all the men around him who are trying to control Mm -hmm. him and that she's mad at them, right? I mean, they're leaking all these nasty stories about her. Of course, that is hell for her. Yeah. And then what comes next is Barbara very flatly asks, you know, he chased you and your mom around Russia He has a volatile temper. Is that true? And I'll let you just sort of listen to the rest of this. Extremely volatile temper. I think people see that about every three months. He's got a side to him that's scary. Michael is intimidating, to say the least. I think that there's a time when he cannot control his temper, and that's frightening to me to my mother and to anyone around. It's scary. What happens? (laughs) He he gets out of control, throwing, screaming. Does he hit you? He shakes, he pushes, he, um, he swings. He, sometimes I think he's trying to scare me. There were times that it happened when I thought I was, I could handle it, you know. And just recently, I've become afraid. I mean, very, very much afraid. For instance, Russia, I was afraid. I just want to emphasize that watching this is so surreal. Like, as this is happening, as she's saying this, they're side by side. His arm is still around her. But, you know, at the start of this interview, he has this sort of, like, plastic smile. It's like, stays there. And then you watch as he's answering this question, his face... I don't know, it almost falls or it goes blank. And suddenly you start to see his chest go up and down, like his breathing is becoming something. But it's very subtle. It's like he's obviously really trying to control his reaction, right? And he is disciplined. Like that is part of being a good boxer. Right. It's fascinating television and it makes you wonder, like from our perspective, was he prepped beforehand? Like did he know this was coming? And, And I mean, my interpretation was that 
he absolutely did not. And that Barbara Walters, part of what she did so well was she just asked the question bluntly, like she just said the thing that people don't say and that Robin answered truly authentically. Yes, I think both of those things are true. I think he was definitely prepped. He's very much trying to stay in control of the situation. But it is also pretty clear to me when you watch Robin's face after Barbara Walters goes back to Tyson and asks him what it's like to listen to this interview. This is a situation in which I'm dealing with my illness. And like basically, like this is my wife and we're dealing with it. There's this kind of moment on Robin's face where she looks kind of in shock, like she can't believe what she's admitted. She's not sure if she's gone too far. Mm. But Mm -hmm. one thing that's interesting is she did say later on that they went out and celebrated after this. They thought this interview had gone well. So it's not entirely clear how much they are both processing this thing in the moment. I think it's just kind of happening and they're trying to make sense of it. it. It's pretty difficult when you're in those interviews, right? When someone's got all these cameras in your face, you almost black out a little. I'm not sure they mm-hmm. realized how far they'd gone until right. there was a public reaction to it later on. And of course, you never remember the sound bites that are going to be taken and replayed. Right. Interestingly, now, when celebrities do these interviews, their publicists record them. Like, they record them on their phones so that they know what happened. Because it is very hard when you're in the heat of the moment to keep track. That's such an interesting point because hearing these clips, you think it's so damning. But the fact that they went out and celebrated, and then later on in the interview, Barbara Walters asks again why she's doing the interview. And and she basically is defending him. Like, she's explaining, and she doesn't want him to seem like a bad guy. And so maybe this is helpful context in understanding where they're both coming from and his untreated mental illness. I mean, in some ways, they are really breaking ground by talking openly about his illness. Yeah, and she's saying very authentically, it seems like, he's been untreated. It got worse, you know, because it gets worse in your 20s. That's just how this particular disease works. And we're fixing it. And I think she really believes that, right? By all accounts and her own telling in her memoir, she's kind of naive about what's going on around them. And then the interview airs. (laughs) That actually feels like a really good place to leave it for today. So if you want to hear what happens after the interview airs, check out part two. This is In Retrospect. Thanks for listening. Is there a cultural moment you can't stop thinking about and want us to explore in a future episode? Email us at inretropod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at inretropod. If you love this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. If you hate it, you can post nasty comments on our Instagram, which we may or may not delete. You can also find us on Instagram at Jessica Bennett and at Suzy B NYC. Also check out Jessica's books, Feminist Fight Club and This Is 18. In Retrospect is a production of iHeart Podcasts and The Meteor. Lauren Hansen is our supervising producer. Derek Clements is our engineer and sound designer. Sharon Atia is our researcher and associate producer. Our executive producer from The Meteor is Cindy Levy. Our executive producers from iHeart are Anna Stump and Katrina Norvell. Our artwork is from Pentagram. Additional editing help from Mary Dew and Mike Coscarelli. Sound correction and mastering by Amanda Rose Smith. We are your hosts, Susie Banacarum and Jessica Bennett. We're also executive producers. For even more, check out inretropod.com. 
See you next week. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's. Because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.